0: Father in heaven, we do thank you for the gift of so many children in this church. And we do pray for you to have compassion, just as you did as you walked this earth. Had compassion on those who were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And this morning, Lord, we are your sheep. Uh, We are the people of your pasture. And we long to be shepherded by you through your word. So would you call us again back to your son? Amen. 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 Well, this morning we dive back into our sermon series on 1 John. We only have two weeks left, and we've covered a lot of ground thus far. So in chapter 1, we learned that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. In chapter 2, John wrote that Jesus Christ is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. In chapter three twenty, it says, Whenever our hearts condemn us, this is such a great verse, whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. Amen? You, and in chapter 4, John, John famously proclaimed, God is love. And furthermore, he says in this challenging verse, If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, And not love God whom he has not seen. So this is just a sampling of some of the famous verses in this epistle. And uh, they're famous for a reason. Uh, They summarize really the essence of John's teaching in this letter. And the essence of John's theology and the essence of the gospel. (coughs) I wouldn't be surprised if some of you have committed a few of these verses to memory at some point along the way. But today we come to a far less famous passage, far less familiar. 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 13. And I'd be willing to guess that 90% of the people sitting in here have never heard a sermon on 1 John chapter 5. Uh, This is just the kind of passage that's easily skipped over, both because it repeats some of those very famous Ideas, some of those very uh, famous truths from earlier in the letter, but also because it contains some really mysterious statements, and it's kind of like a, what's he getting at there? Uh, Moving on, kind of. (laughs) But if we really believe, as Scripture proclaims about itself, that all Scripture is God-breathed, all Scripture is God-breathed and useful, then it follows that the church is impoverished by our neglect of any passage. In the Word of God. One of my Old Testament professors used to say that the neglected Bible passages of today become the heresies of tomorrow. And uh, John and I were just talking earlier this week, and he said one of the things that he loves about preaching through every passage in a book of Scripture is that you always end up coming to these passages that people have never heard any sermons on, and you mm-hmm. just kind of uncover these, these nice little nuggets mm-hmm. of truth that, that people haven't heard before. And, uh, you know, the Bible's the only book in the world that when you read it, um, that there, there are verses in there that were never there before, right? <laughs> <laughs> You've had that experience. You're like, I know that verse wasn't there before. <laughs> Um, So with these things in mind, please turn with me to 1 John chapter 5. It's on page 1023 of your pew Bible. And let's be eager to uncover some hidden gems, some fresh bread from God's word this morning. And I actually want to begin by diving right into the middle of this passage, uh, to perhaps the most mysterious part. Will you look down with me at verse 6. It says this. This is he who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by the water and the blood. And then it goes on to say in verses 7 and 8, For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. Now, what does John mean by this? Clearly, uh, he teaches in several places that the Holy Spirit is the one who points us to the truth about Jesus. So we're familiar with that idea, but what the heck is he talking about? When he says that this is the one who comes by water and the blood. And really there are three historical interpretations of this passage. And I think all of them have some merit and will be kind of edifying to wrestle with. So the first is that John is referring to the blood and water that poured from Jesus' side when he was pierced with a spear on the cross. Do you remember that story So Jesus and, and the other criminals are, are hanging on the cross, but it's about to be the Sabbath day. So the Jewish people say, hey, break their legs so that they're not hanging up there all throughout the Sabbath, because that would, that would ruin the Sabbath day. That would ruin our holy day. So just break their legs. And uh, the, the idea was that when, when people were crucified, they would push themselves up by their legs to save themselves from asphyxiation. Right now, the interesting thing is, is when they came to Jesus, he was already dead and everybody was surprised by that. What does that mean about Jesus? It means that he was not resisting the cross in any way. Amen. Mm -hmm. And so they come up to Jesus and they poke his side with a spear and out of his side flows blood and water. As a side note, you may have noticed that when John and I prepare the table for communion every week, we always pour a little bit of water into the wine. Do you ever notice that? And we do this in symbolic connection back to this moment on the cross. So the actual moment is recorded in the Gospel of John, chapter 19, verse 34. And it's interesting to note, only the Apostle John, he's the only one who includes this detail in his Gospel. He actually sort of pauses the story for a moment and tells us that this event fulfilled two different Old Testament prophecies. And he says in chapter 19, verse 35, he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth that you may also believe. And I think it's interesting that John's... Word choices here in the Gospel of John chapter 19 are very similar to the words he uses in 1 John 5, right? He uses words blood, water, testimony, truth. These are some of John's favorite words. And that only strengthens the idea of this first interpretation. Maybe it's referring to the blood and water that poured from Jesus' side. A second and probably less likely interpretation, but one that has a long history in the church is that the water and the blood refer to the sacraments of the church, of baptism and Holy Communion. So in John's gospel, for example, in John chapter 3, Jesus refers to baptism just by the simple word water. He says, unless you're born of water and the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And then in John chapter 6, he says, uh, he, he says to the crowds, eat my flesh, drink my blood, which is sort of a, a proleptic Uh, uh, reference to the Eucharist that would come right Jesus wasn't encouraging cannibalism (laughs) so in this view the testimony of the water and the blood would actually be a sort of ongoing experiential testimony that the Holy Spirit gives to uh, the believers Um, when they come for baptism when they they come up regularly um, to share in Holy Communion that the Holy Spirit testifies to Jesus and that testimony is reliable and uh, this has been a common phenomenon for Christians down through the ages. Holy Communion, in particular, has just been a meeting place for people. I was talking to a woman at this church who, um, lifelong Christian, but she told me that growing up, uh, her church, for whatever reason, never celebrated Communion. It just wasn't emphasized. And, um, but she said that in this season of her life, as she's been coming around now for a few years, That's just become one of the sweetest, most consistent meeting places between her and Jesus. Maybe some of you have experienced that as well. So on the one hand, while I can't deny the the sort of experiential logic of this interpretation, I I know that for me, uh, baptism, celebrating the baptism last week, that was such a cool moment with the Lord. For me, every week when I come up uh, to receive the bread and the wine, it's usually an intimate meeting place with me and God. But... On the other hand, I sort of doubt that this is what John is getting at here, because there's actually been no talk of the sacraments to this point, so it would seem to be kind of coming up out of nowhere Mm -hmm. and without any clarification, right? So a third view about the water and the blood, and the one that really seems the most likely, given the wider context of 1 John, is that it's referring to John saying that he wants us to believe the total truth about Jesus, So John wants us to believe it all, not just to pick and choose what we believe about Jesus. So let me explain. If you remember, in chapters 1 through 4, John refers to some false teachers who had abandoned the church, and they were teaching false things about Jesus. They taught that, you know, he's, he's a good man who had special favor from God, but they denied that he was God's eternal son, And they denied the significance, the sin-atoning significance of the cross. And so you can read about that in the first few chapters of 1 John. And, uh, you know, people still do this today, right? Despite the testimony of Jesus' earliest eyewitnesses, we still like to think of Jesus oftentimes as just like a good moral teacher, right? So I don't know about this stuff about him being the son of God and dying for the sins of the world, but he's a good man, right? He's a good moral teacher. He's inspiring. He might even be a son of God, but not the son of God. But in contrast, the apostle John testifies that Jesus came by water and blood, not by water only. and In other words, no half-truths, but by water and the blood. And here, water is likely referring to the Spirit's testimony and God the Father's testimony over Jesus at His baptism. You remember when Jesus was being baptized, the Father said, "'This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased.'" So there was a public testimony about Jesus' divine Sonship at His baptism. And the blood, of course, would be referring to Jesus' death on the cross— Um, his his sin-atoning death, his substitutionary death. So when Jesus died on the cross and said, it is finished, and the curtain was torn from top to bottom, there was a testimony about what he claimed was going on through his blood. So unless we have both these things straight, sort of the the divine sonship of Jesus, the divine identity of Jesus, and his sin-bearing death of the cross, then we don't have the total truth about Jesus. Amen? Amen? Now it's important to note that John's opponents don't deny that a man named Jesus was baptized and crucified. It's just they attach a different significance to these events. In fact, they seem to believe that this sort of uh, anointing of Jesus or, or sort of Christ left Jesus on the cross sort of thing. And this was an early heresy in the church. New Testament scholar Howard Marshall puts it this way. He says, for John's opponents, it was merely the human Jesus who died, But as soon as we reduce the death of Jesus to that of a mere man, so soon do we lose the cardinal point that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That's what the Apostle Paul says, right? So Marshall concludes, but if Jesus is not the son of God, his death can no longer bear this significance. In other words, without both the water and the blood, both his divinity and his substitutionary death, there's actually no good news. There's actually no salvation. And John wants us to have the total truth. So we'll return to this later, but for now it's worth observing that sometimes these these peripheral passages, or we wrestle with these kind of confusing phrases, and it can churn up a lot of truth. And maybe we don't know for sure exactly what the exact right Uh, uh, interpretation is but do you see how much biblical truth you wrestle with when you're trying to get at it so another reason we don't often engage 1 John chapter 5 is that it repeats a lot of the same truths that have already been said in the earlier chapters in much more famous verses so for example in verses 1 through 5 of this chapter John talks about being born of God and he gives three different ways of knowing whether someone has been born again three different signs of spiritual rebirth so faith is one, and the second is love, and the third is obedience, obeying God's commands. So if you've ever wondered, uh, what's the evidence of a genuine relationship with God? You can look no further than these three things. And of course, John has already talked about these three things at length, faith and love and obedience at various, various points throughout this letter. But I think there's something clarifying about what he does here, because he brings them all together. Right? And just a few punchy statements. Because he wants to make sure that you don't miss these three things. That you're testing your heart by these three things. That you're looking for these things and saying, this is what a born-again person is supposed to grow into. Amen? Amen. So look there with me, if you would. First of all, it says in verse 1 that everyone who believes, it's a key word, believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. So the born-again person, he says, will show forth the evidence of faith in Christ. Verse 5 puts it this way. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes? Say, believes. Believes. That Jesus is the Son of God. There it is again. And notice that sometimes John speaks of faith as a sign of new birth. And sometimes as a condition of new birth. Right, But either way, it's essential for him. This was true in John's day as well as our own. There's there's no sense pretending that we're Christians if we don't believe that Jesus is really the Son of God. Amen? Mm -hmm. Whether for family pressure or because we want to be elected to public office or something, there's no sense in pretending if we don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the victory that overcomes the world, John says. Our faith. Second, if we're born of God, then our lives will be marked by love. We'll love the Father, verse 1, and love the children of God, verse 2. What's more, John argues here that if you love the Father, then you'll love His kids too. Right? It says in the second half of verse 1, Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. In other words... It's wrong-headed to try to, like, kind of attempt to draw near, from God, draw near to God and then, like, completely pull away from the people of God, the church. Do you think of yourself as better than the other children of God? A little more spiritually clever, a little more worthy of the Father's love? Sometimes we carry those kinds of attitudes even into worship settings. And if that's you this morning, that's just pride, plain and simple. If you're looking down your nose at the people of God, if you refuse to align yourself with the people of God, that's pride. If we want a sinless church, it's best not to show up (laughs) and sort of add our sins to the pile, amen? I'll admit and sympathize that sometimes it can be embarrassing to align yourself with God's people. Because of the historic sins of the church and because our lives are all still very messed up, right? And maybe because some Christians, you know, post crazy things on social media. And if that's you, by all means, please stop for the sake of the rest of us. (laughs) But ultimately, if we love the Father, we will love his children as well. Think about it. If you said to any parents at this church... Hey, I really love you guys, but I can't stand your kids. (laughs) Like, I want to grow my relationship with you, but I want nothing to do with your kids, just to be clear. (laughs) (laughs) If you said that, I would guess that that profession of love for them would not quite compute. Mm -hmm. Right? Because they would... They would internalize your disdain for their children as disdain for them. Amen? Mm -hmm. Because that's how our parents' hearts are knitted with their kids. And it's the same with our Heavenly Father. So love, love for God, love for His children, love for His church, is the second mark of spiritual rebirth. And the third is obedience. Verse 2 says, By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey His commandments. And then verse 3 adds, For this is the love of God. In other words, this is what the love of God consists of. That we keep His commandments. Now again, we've already come across this theme at several points in 1 John. So if you want to hear more preaching on that topic, I'd encourage you to go back a few episodes in our sermon podcast. But I want um, to focus here on 1 John Chapter 5, verse 3, because there's this little reminder, there's this little addition that he gives, and I love it. He says that God's commandments are not burdensome. Yeah. Isn't that important to remember? To remind ourselves? Because, right, you know, when I when I think about the commandments, oftentimes I, I feel like that's actually hard to believe in practice. Jesus says that his yoke is easy and his burden is light, but we're kind of like. If I I really obey you, if I'm serious about following you, your burden's going to be burdensome. (laughs) Right? That's what we tend to think. We tend to think that God's commandments are sort of busy work, right? They don't have anything to do with how God created us to be and live and thrive. I knew a girl in college who was dating the wrong guy. She knew it. Everyone else knew it. And she knew and confessed that God was telling her to let this guy go. And it couldn't be more clear. But she couldn't bring herself to do it. It felt too burdensome. And so she didn't break it off. And I've just seen in the years that follow all the continual burdens that have come to her and her faith ever since that decision. So we are worried that God's commandments that what God tells us to do is going to be burdensome, but He would spare us of our own self-imposed burdens that come from our terrible and sinful decisions. Amen? Amen. Another reason we tend to think that God's commandments are burdensome is that we know that we don't have the power to obey them in our own strength. Mm -hmm. But what this passage says is that trust in Jesus releases the power of Jesus. John says that his commandments are not burdensome. And then he gives a reason. He says, for everyone, for everyone. So this is the reason. This is the reason why they're not burdensome. Who has been born of God overcomes the world. So the commandments of God feel burdensome to us because the world is encroaching on us and the world seems powerful and the world seems impressive. And we say, it would be a burden to try to swim against this current. And Jesus is like, I'll strengthen your muscles for that. I'll give you the ability to overcome the world. I can't tell you how many former alcoholics I've met, dozens and dozens, that tell me that when they were finally at the end of their own strength, when they had gotten to a point where the world was a perpetual burden to them, they reached out to Jesus and he set their feet on solid ground. There are people in this church that were once homeless on the streets, before Jesus rescued them. I've met dozens more who have the same testimony when it comes to the Lord delivering them from lust and anger and gossip and loneliness and evil spirits and fear of death. And maybe that list doesn't hit you. Maybe you have some other problem or some other substance that you're addicted to, legal or illegal, but you know that it's gotten out of hand. And friends, the Lord doesn't want you to be a slave to any sin or substance. I just felt like when we were praying over this passage earlier this week, I felt this burden. We're praying through 1 John 5 and this power to overcome the world. And in my mind, I'm just thinking about all these cannabis stores that are just coming up around Tallahassee. And it breaks my heart because I just think that it's just another way for people to be in bondage. And I know there's a place for painkillers at times in your life. And there's a a place for psychotropic drugs at times in your life, which are also so heavily abused in our culture. And I just think that the Lord Jesus would tell his church, I want to give you the power to overcome. I don't want you to be addicted to substances the rest of your life. I don't want you to dope yourself up the rest of your life. I want to give you power to overcome. I want to give you victory. This world can be a burdensome place, and that is beyond dispute. And if you want to follow both Jesus and the world, you will face burdens, and that is beyond dispute. But if you yoke yourself with Jesus and go where He's steering, His commands are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So that brings us full circle John gives us these three signs of spiritual rebirth, faith, love, and obedience. And he reminds us that these things bring victory and not defeat, victory that has overcome the world. So far, we've looked at the middle and beginning of this somewhat obscure passage. But before we close this morning, it's important that we look at the end as well. Because in verse 13, John spells out in a crystal clear way his whole purpose for writing this letter. And it's a very weighty purpose. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Again and again, John wants us to have eternal life. And not only that, but to know that we have eternal life. To have a sense of assurance And friends, what could be more weighty than that? This is more than a matter of life and death. It's a matter of eternity, what John is talking about here. Verse 12 says, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. So in other words, it depends. It completely depends on your relationship with Jesus. One commentator put it this way. He said, those who deny that Jesus is the Son of God have cut themselves off From the life of God. No matter how much they may protest. They don't possess it. So I ask you this morning. If you were to die today. Do you know for certain. Where you would spend eternity? Do you have assurance of that? Because no one has promised another day. amen? Amen. Do you know. That's John's word. He wants you to know. For certain that you have eternal life. In a minute, I'm going to give you a chance to talk to the Lord about it and to do business with Jesus. The Apostle John wants us to have this sense of assurance. And so do I. And the scriptures say that it starts with faith in Jesus. That's the doorway. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So as we draw to a close, I'm going to read out a powerful summary of the gospel. So we're going to listen to this summary of the gospel and ask the Lord to fan into flame faith in our hearts as we listen. This is a summary given by the 20th century playwright Dorothy Sayers. So as I read it, ask yourself, am I ready to believe this? Do I truly believe that this is the testimony of God to the world? (coughs) that this is the medicine of immortality. This is how Sayers puts it. She writes, Possibly we might prefer not to take this tale too seriously. There are disquieting points about it. Here we had a man of divine character walking and talking among us, and what did we find to do with him? The common people indeed heard him gladly But our leading authorities in church and state considered that he talked too much and uttered too many disconcerting truths. So we bribed one of his friends to hand him over quietly to the police. And we tried him on a rather vague charge of creating a disturbance and had him publicly flogged and hung on the common gallows, thanking God that we were rid of the knave. Sayers continues, All this was not very much to our credit, even if he was, as many people thought and think, only a harmless, crazy preacher. But if the church is right about him, it was more discreditable still, for the man we hanged was God Almighty. And she concludes, so that is the outline of the official story. The tale of the time when God was the underdog and got beaten, when he submitted to the conditions he had laid down became a man like the men he had made and the men he had made broke him and killed him this is the dogma we find so dull this terrifying drama of which god is the victim and the hero this is the message of the gospel brothers and sisters and it's the same message whether the passage is famous or obscure as the Apostle John says, whoever believes in the Son of God has this testimony in himself. God's Holy Spirit confirms within you, this is the testimony of God. Therefore, it's, if it's confirmed within us and we have that testimony within ourselves, it's the testimony of the Apostle Paul. It's the testimony of John. It's the testimony of St. Augustine. It's the testimony of Martin Luther. It's the testimony of Dorothy Sayers. It's the testimony of Mother Teresa. It's the testimony of Billy Graham. But even more so, as verse 9 says, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. The Holy Spirit testifies this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his son. The Apostle Paul says the gospel is the power of God to those who believe. He gives his own power to this message to confirm it in our souls. Have you experienced that? Do you believe this is God's testimony concerning his son? If so, please pray with me. You can all pray with me if you like. As I pray, if you agree with the words that I'm saying, you can repeat them in your own heart to God or make them your own. Heavenly Father, your word says... that our faith enters us into your victory. That by faith in your Son, as our divine Savior who died in our place, the victim and the hero, by faith in Him we are saved, by faith in Him we get foretastes of your power even in this life, power to overcome. And that from believing, you'll grow us in love, and from love you'll grow us in obedience, And Lord, we just ask for the whole thing, the total truth about Christ. Father, I believe that your Holy Spirit testifies to the truth of this message. And Father, I pray that while your Spirit is yet moving among us, not some future day, not some future hour, but while your Spirit is yet moving among us today, that in our hearts and with our mouths, we would confess you as our Savior and Lord. Amen. 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 If that was you this morning, if you put your faith in Jesus for the first time, if you say, I'm ready to do this, then while the Spirit is among us today, I want you to do something risky. All right? In a few minutes, when people come forward for communion, Will you come up and indicate either to Pastor John or to myself that you have put your faith in Jesus today? And you can show us your hand just kind of like this. Like, I pray. I put my faith in Jesus. (laughs) Show us your hand like that. It's not a big deal. And we'll just pray for you. Instead of giving you the bread, we'll just pause and just pray for you real briefly. And then we'll talk to you after the service. All right. And it might sound a little risky to come up. Uh, I know that John in particular is very scary with that British accent. (laughs) But if you truly believe that Jesus is who he said he is, then you should not be afraid to own him as your king. Amen? Does that make sense? Okay, good. Amen.